This morning, we're starting a three-week series on who we are as a church and where we're going as a church. Uh, Late last year, we had a meeting and we voted to shorten the name of our church, and we are now Shore Community Church. Most of you thought that's what we were anyway, right? But that's who we are now, Shore Community Church. We've got a new logo, I think, up there. There it is, hey, new logo. And, uh, And we've got one on white as well. There we go. So, isn't that fancy, huh? Our big thanks, by the way, to Graham Burt and Harrison Burt for putting that logo together. Fantastic stuff. We even managed to get it okay with the projector, which continues to stuff up the colours, but it's working all right. So, uh, this is who we are. We're going to talk more about what it means to be a community church in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, really, over these next three weeks, very simply, we want to look at uh, who we are, our identity as Shaw Community Church, and uh, where we are heading. I don't know whether you remember a couple of years ago, I I stood up here and I expressed the fact that myself and the elders were feeling kind of worn out by by the sort of popular talk, I suppose, at the time of uh, vision statements and purpose statements and mission statements and 12-point strategic plans and six-point pillars and seven purposes of effective ministry. And, you know, it just starts to sound like the 12 days of Christmas after a little while. It's kind of all this... You know, for, for those of you who don't know, there is, a, there is an entire industry devoted to um, this stuff, this, this speak, um, church growth strategy and church marketing strategy and, and how to do all this stuff. And, and there's some good things in there, but we'd kind of been worn down by so much of that, which can be, if you're not careful, a lot of talk with not much substance to it. And we said at the time, we're just going to put that aside. And we're going to be a church that just comes back to the basics as we see the church in Scripture and and what they do. And more importantly, we want to be a church that just listens to the voice of God and learns to follow Him. We want to somehow try and give practical expression to this idea that Christ is the head of the church. Because if there's no point in our church life where that's actually true, other than just words we say, then we've sort of lost our way. So we deliberately haven't really had a, a vision statement, a purpose statement, a mission statement, or, or any great nicely alliterated strategic plan where you can all remember these snappy phrases. And I think that's actually been good. It's actually been quite liberating. And I know I've, I've had many conversations with people who have felt quite relieved that we haven't gone down this track of planning ourselves into oblivion and giving no space to the Spirit. But we've allowed God to place things on people's hearts and to let things bubble up. And things have. It's not like we've done nothing. Many, many good things have happened. Uh, The community service project that we did last year, I don't think it's something we could have foreseen or necessarily planned out years in advance, but God has placed passions on the hearts of people. Needs have arisen within our community and we've been able to respond. And we want to keep being that. Um, We want that to be an ethos that really pervades the life of our church, that we are spirit-led. Um, there's, there's a point at which a church is fundamentally different to a corporate organization, to the tennis club down the road. We have to be. Um, we are a different living organism, which is led by the resurrected Christ and infused and animated by the power of His Spirit. And we want that to be real in our church. So we want to be a listening church. But at the same time, we, we do have a clearer and clearer sense, I think, of where we're heading and who we are. And, and over the last year, God has really placed on my heart 
um, a, 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 just a, three, a simple threefold way of thinking about who we are as a church and where we're going. It's nothing new, it's nothing novel, it's nothing particularly clever, but it's simply this, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. Now, some of you have heard us talk about this before, and you say, gosh, that is the most simple thing. You know, how on earth did it take you so long to figure that out? Well, it, it's not a new vision. It's not really anything uh, new at all. It's very old. It goes back to the Scriptures, and this is simply what we see the church doing in the book of Acts. But I've just found over the past few months, God has laid this heavy on my heart as a way of thinking about ministry, as a way of thinking about each of our ministries. And, you, and you'll hear these themes come out as our ministry leaders speak. You'll hear these three, this threefold identity, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. I don't like referring to it as a vision statement because I think that word vision has got all kinds of baggage that's not always healthy. Um, but maybe just think of it as our reason for being, our raison d'etre. This is our reason for existence, you know, loving. Why do we exist as a church? Loving God, loving each other, loving the world. Very simple. Uh, and so this week and next week and the week after, we are simply going to unpack that and look from the Scriptures at what this means. What does it mean to be a church that loves God? What does it mean to be a church that loves each other? What does it mean to be a church that loves the world? And what does that look like in our specific context? You'll hear from these ministry leaders as they speak to you over the next couple of months. We're going to do this by looking at a passage in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, a passage that we've gone back to several times over the past few years to try and reclaim a sense of what the church is, what the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it just gives you this great view of the early church, the vintage church, and, and what they did and how they worked and, and what it was like in those early meetings and gatherings and life of that community. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 2. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be in the same passage for a few weeks, and we're going to discern and hear these three themes and then how they come to bear on the contemporary church and specifically in our context and who we are. So let's read this passage together in Acts 2. It starts in verse 42, goes through to verse 47, and then we'll talk about it. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the idea of loving God. So Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you see that, um, that interplay of being led by the Spirit, being led by God, allowing Him to come and move and lead, but at the same time, here's a church who knew what they were about. And they didn't sit idly back and just wait for God to act. They, they, they did things. They pursued things. They prioritized things. And I think in this passage, you can see each of these three themes, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. And today, let's talk specifically about loving God as a church, as a community, loving God. And it jumps out right from the very first phrase. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have the New Testament as we have it, so they were reliant on the apostles explaining the Old Testament in view of Jesus, explaining the death and the resurrection of Christ and what it meant. They devoted themselves to this teaching of God's spoken and written word, and we could call this today being a word-centered community. 
This is who we are as a church, or at least it's who we want to be. Our goal, our mission, our purpose, at sure, is to be the kind of community that fosters and promotes and cultivates and nurtures a word-centered culture. Because we believe that loving God means loving His Word. Loving God means knowing God, not just, not just a feeling, not just a vague abstract idea, but loving Him means knowing Him. And how has God expressed Himself? How has He made Himself known? How has He revealed Himself to us? Primarily through His Word. Not exclusively through His Word, He reveals Himself in other ways too, through the gentle prompting of His Spirit, through creation, through Christ Himself, the historical person of Jesus, but supremely through the written word, which is the Scriptures. So as a community of faith, we are a church that desires and strives to be word-centered. And you have to understand that that's an incredibly countercultural idea, not just countercultural in, in a secular sense. Of course, it is that. The Bible has really no place these days within secular culture. But even within the church, this is a countercultural movement. Because within modern Christianity, there is an increasing decentering of the Bible, a, a, a marginalizing of the Scriptures. And increasingly, we just become disinterested in this book and figure that we can just sort of get on without it, that we can just know God just through, through feelings and just through talking with Him and just through experiencing Him. But this book really doesn't have much to say to us. And so we are just continuing to leave this on the shelf and put it aside and pay very little attention to it. And as a community here at Shaw, we desire to swim upstream from that. We desire to be a voice against that and say that is not God's design and His plan for us to simply marginalize His Word. We are recentering the Scriptures as a source and a source of nourishment in our Christian lives, a source of God speaking to us. We're not just doing it to get information from the text, but we're doing it for transformation. So the Spirit of God would meet us in the pages of the written Word, and we would be together transformed. That's what being a Word-centered church means. It means that we are wanting to reclaim the centrality of the Scriptures in the life of this community. That's not just me teaching it on a Sunday morning, but that's you becoming self-feeders. This is my greatest passion as a pastor, is to see a community of faith that becomes self-feeders, able to read it, able to study the Scriptures, able to understand the Bible, able to apply the Bible for themselves with the tools and the resources to do that and do it in community, but not need to be spoon-feeders from one person on a Sunday, but to have a culture among our community and a model to the broader Christian community of what it means to have a culture here that respects and reveres and applies ourselves to the Word of God and seriously engages with the ancient text of Scripture. We'll study it. We'll wrestle with it. We'll try and probe its depths, and we'll allow it to work on our lives as well. That is who we are. That is who we want to be. And as much as... We're standing against this culture of marginalizing the Bible and downplaying its importance. As a word-centered church, we're also standing against this tendency to just hollow out the Bible. Because in plenty of Christian circles, they hold the Bible in high esteem, but they use it in a really destructive way. It's just reduced down to a bunch of rules or propositions or bullet-pointed verses that we can kind of clobber each other over the head with, just use for ammo in our arguments. And as a church, what we're saying is we want to value the Bible, but value it in the right way. 
And that's why sure, our approach to the Scriptures, our approach to Christian teaching and theology is called narrative theology. And it simply means seeing the Scriptures as story. And if you were here in January, we opened up this idea, we talked about the drama of Scripture, the Bible as a six-act play. This is a very healthy way of understanding what the Bible is. It is the ongoing story of who God is and what He is doing from creation to new creation. A story into which we're written, of which we're now a part, and we are moving the story forward towards its glorious ending, which God is going to come and orchestrate one day. This is narrative theology, and it gives us so many resources for deepening out our understanding of the Scriptures. No longer is this just a list of isolated verses that you can pluck one out as if it just exists in a vacuum. Now it's an integrated whole. Now it's a whole meta-narrative made up of lots of mini-stories. And when you're burrowed into one particular part of it, you can see it in view of the whole. So we understand the Bible here at Shaw as, as a huge sweeping drama or a massive great story of redemption. And by understanding it that way, we believe that we are going to deepen out our, 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 our ability to interpret it, and it's going to enrich in our ability to apply it. Now, let me illustrate to you what this means in practice for us to be a word-centered church of the kind we're talking about. There was a guy in Australia who went and visited a cattle ranch in the Australian outback, and he noticed as he was visiting this ranch that the cattle were wandering free over these plains without any fences. And yet they didn't seem to be wandering far from the ranch itself. There seemed to be very few boundaries to keep them in, but the cattle somehow weren't dispersing. And he asked the guy who owned the ranch, he said, how is this possible that you have a whole lot of cattle here, but they don't seem to be taking off, even though you don't have any fences? And the guy looked at him and said, around here we dig wells instead of building fences. Now what he meant is, you dig a well deep enough and provide a source of water and nourishment for the cattle, it's going to give them a center to come to. It's going to draw them in. It's going to pull them in. And it's going to prevent them from wandering too far away because you're always giving them something they want to come back to. Now I think the implications for a church community are profound. I'm not calling you all a bunch of cattle, but the idea is that we want to be a church that digs wells not builds fences, because there's really two ways of approaching this. One is we could be a church that spends all our time building fences. And that would mean we spend all our time talking about minuscule little doctrinal issues and creating this 50-page statement of faith that talks about every little thing and everyone has to believe exactly the same thing and you all have to tick a little box to say this, 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 we're all on the same page and we produce like these sort of assembly line Christians where we all think exactly the same and we all act exactly the same. Now this is one way of doing it. And, and, and if you go down this road, you end up spending most of your time on boundary maintenance, fixing the fences and making sure no cattle escape to outside. And this is where you spend your time, on the outskirts, because you've got to try and keep the cattle in. You've got to try and keep people centered, and you're always worrying that they're going to escape. So you, you keep on saying, this is who we are, this is you know, where we're at, and, and, and you're on the outside. And the center often gets a little bit neglected. As a community here, we are going to be committed to digging wells and not building fences. Digging wells means that we use the Scriptures not to create a whole lot of doctrinal requirements for people before they can be part of this community. We use the Scriptures to place Christ at the center of our community 
believing that as we do that, he will draw people to himself. And we spend our time and our energy on enthroning Christ through the Scriptures, as the Bible itself does. It speaks to his centrality and his majesty and placing Christ at the very center of our community, trusting that he provides the nourishment that people are drawn to. Now, that doesn't mean, don't hear me saying there's no sense of boundaries, anyone's in, doesn't matter, anything goes. That's not it at all. But it does mean that in a church that digs wells, we don't measure people so much in terms of just being insiders or outsiders. We measure them instead by their degree of distance from the center. And we recognize that the spiritual pilgrim of being a Christian is a journey. It's not simply black and white, in and out. You're in, you're out. Tick a box, pray a prayer, done. But instead, we are all on this lifelong journey. Of course, there is a point where we come to Christ and make that decision. Although even then, for some people, it's a long process and it's not always discernible exactly when that moment is. But even when you've crossed that line and made that step, we're still on a journey. It's just beginning. I'm just paddling in the shallows. And so as a church that digs wells, we place Christ in the center and we confess that every one of us in some way, unless you're just flat out moving against Jesus and totally disinterested, in which case you're probably not going to be here anyway, we're all seeking to move towards him to some degree. Some of us are just still seeking and still trying to figure out if this is even what we want to buy into. Some of us have crossed that line of faith and we're pursuing our spiritual journey but still got so much to figure out, so much to learn. We're all at different points, but we're all moving toward this center. So does this make sense? As a church, we're going to be hard in the center and soft at the edges. I'm trying to think of a lolly to give you an illustration of that, but I can't. What kind of lolly is hard at the center and soft at the edges? I don't know, but this is who we're going to be. We're going to build, dig wells and not spend all that time building fences to try and keep people out and keep people in. We believe in being a Christ-centered, word-centered church. That's how we're going to use the scriptures. That's how you'll hear it taught. That's the kind of culture that we're going to create. That's what it means for us to love God, to be a word-centered church, to love him by digging that well of Christ deeply and richly at the center of our shared life. Now, here's the second idea. Not only does loving God mean being a word-centered church, it also means being a worshiping church. Look at this passage again, Acts 2. Here's a community, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Later on, we're told they break bread in people's homes. They praise God. All these are expressions of worship. All these are different ways in which a community comes together to worship God. I know as soon as you start talking about worship, I can already feel some of your invisible hands going up and saying, I'm just not into worship. Thanks very much. You know, you sort of argue against the person talking. I do that too, you know. You put up the excuses. I'm not into worship. I don't like this. I I don't sing songs. What that reveals, friends, is that we have reduced worship down to something that it never was intended to be scripturally. We have reduced worship down to just singing songs. Just standing and singing songs. Now, that is certainly part of it. But worship, biblically, is far deeper, far richer Far more broad and expansive than that. Most broadly, worship is anything that we do that gives glory to God. Our entire lives should be worship. Our entire shared life as a community should be worship. And yet within that, you see this model of a church that comes together, that gathers to give concrete expression 
to its worshipping life. And it does that not just through singing, although that was part of it, but through other ways as well. And there's an idea that's been on my mind for a little while. The idea has been worship pathways. I think people, different people, have different worship pathways that enable them to most meaningfully connect with God and enter into worship experiences. See, often we assume everyone's worship pathway is singing. But that's not the case. We are wired differently. We are a, a diverse bunch of people, and that's good. We're all made in the image of a very diverse God. And God's diversity is reflected in ours. So there are going to be different ways in which you and I are wired to relate to God, to worship God. For some people, I think their worship pathway is singing and music in a collective sense. For some of you, there is nothing that makes you feel connected to God and draws you in and fosters your worship experience like standing and singing music as we have been this morning. Singing a song like I Surrender just lifts you up into the throne room of God, so to speak, and enables you to really pour out your heart like nothing else. That's wonderful. There's many people for whom that is their worship language. That's their worship pathway. But not everybody. I think there's other people that are more meditative, contemplative types. You know, you're the kind of people that, for whom just, just listening to some quiet music playing and just maybe reflecting on some biblical texts and just allowing God to speak to you, even times of silence, don't freak you out. These times of people, just the, the ponderers, the meditative types. For some of you, that draws you to God like nothing else. Some of you have more of an intellectual pathway. And while singing, you know, that, that's, that might be one way of worshipping for you to perhaps speak a prayer that, that expresses certain attributes of God. Or for you, standing in the context of this community and reciting one of the great creeds of Christendom that speak of the great affirmations of our faith, for you, that could be a deeply devotional experience. You might have more of a study pathway, singing one of the great old hymns that's full of rich and dense theology. For you, that just presses your buttons. That is worship. That is your worship language. Some of you are more aesthetic and seeing images Perhaps images of traditional Christian art or contemporary art. Images, video, having something in your hand that you can see, touch. These are things that draw you into Christ's presence. See, we're wired differently, you and I. And so we should expect when we come to our worship times that we are going to engage differently with God. And, and here's the deal. That as we've talked about this as worship leaders, what we're going to try and do this year is open up our understanding a little bit in these meetings of what communal worship looks like and actually try some new things. Now, we're on a journey with this as well, so you've got to be full of grace towards us because we're just learning and we're just trying to figure this out too, but we are going to experiment and we are going to try and provide ways for different worship pathways to connect with God. But the flip side of that is this, you can't let this be an excuse for you to become a worship consumer. Because it's going to be too easy for all of you to sit there and say, oh, well, I'm just going to wait till my worship pathway comes online and then maybe I might contribute. You know? But this just isn't my... Pa- see, I can see where this is going to go with you guys, right? This is just not my thing. I'm just not the singing guy, so I'm just going to wait. This is not an excuse. This is not something to bargain God with. Because ultimately, as worshippers, 
The responsibility to worship is ours, regardless of what song it might be, regardless of what style of worship it might be, whether or not you feel like it's your worship pathway. Because if you can picture the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ standing in the center of our gathering now, maybe it helps you to picture that scene in Revelation of Jesus on the throne with the, with the angels around him and the 24 elders throwing their crowns down before him and the cherubim and seraphim uh, falling down, the angels, thunder and lightning around the throne. If you picture that scene, it is hard to imagine yourself saying to Jesus as he anticipates your worship, well, that's just not my worship language. That's just not my worship pathway, Jesus. You know, Maybe if you can help me out a bit and give me a better song to sing or let's have some reflective time or maybe let's recite a prayer, I might be into it. But to be honest with you, until that happens, I'm just going to sit here, thanks. See, we've got to get past a self-centered way of worshiping where it's about me, my expectations, how I'm feeling, and what my preferences are. Worship is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's to him and through him and all about him. We need to center our collective worship around him, regardless of how we're feeling and regardless of whether it's our style of worship or not. It is our responsibility. And sometimes, friends, that does mean it's going to be hard. And when it is, that's actually quite good because then it takes a sacrifice of praise. Then it takes a sacrifice to worship God. And a sacrifice always means giving up something. For you to genuinely become a worshiper and for us to genuinely become a worshiping community, it will take us giving up things. It might take you giving up your preferences as to how exactly you would like the worship experience to be. It might take you giving up your inhibitions and allowing yourself more freedom in worship. It might take you giving up your own feeling of just being too tired and too stressed and too distracted to bother engaging in this time. It might take you just laying that down and saying, in spite of those things, I will still worship. That's why David in the Psalms says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his soul. He's talking to himself. He's saying, you're going to bless the Lord, my soul. Regardless of how downcast you are, regardless of how you're feeling, you will bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the sense of that verse. That's a good thought for us to have as we enter into worship, for us to say to ourselves, you're going to bless the Lord today. Soul, heart, I direct you towards the one who's enthroned here, and we are going to enter into worship. So you see how being a worshiping church, it's going to be a two-sided coin here. On the one hand, as leaders, we're going to do our best to facilitate new ways of worshiping, and we're going to do something like that in just a second. But as worshipers... We need to recognize this is our responsibility. And our worship pathway, while it's a great way of understanding how we connect to God, it is not a bargaining chip. It is not an excuse. And it's not a reason to become a worship consumer. But instead, we're going to choose to participate in these communal worship experiences, knowing that this is part of what it means to love God. So loving God together means a lot of things. But from this passage... We focus on two. Loving God means being a word-centered community, honoring, treasuring, esteeming, and applying ourselves to intaking this book. And loving God means being a worshiping community devoted to coming together to worship and give ourselves away to the one who gave himself away to us.